Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Content warning. This episode discusses events within Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles and Homer's Iliad, including incidents of physical and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. It's special episode time, so today we'll be discussing The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller with some podcast friends answering the conveniently placed discussion questions at the back of the book. Carter's running a bit late, but we'll join us shortly, so stick around. Okay! (laughs) It's really, really nice to have you both here. Brayden from Return to Camp. Hello. Hello. And Maddie from Fatal Flaw. Hi. Hi there. This is such a fun crossover episode. I'm loving it. I'm digging it. You want to tell me about when you read this book, overall thoughts? I read this book in the past three days. <laughs> uh, it had been on my list. I've been reading Cersei. I was like, I'm going to finish it first. I didn't finish it first in time enough, but I said I was coming on this podcast. And therefore, <laughs> I listened to the audiobook. I was driving to work today crying while <laughs> listening to the end of this book. I love it. It's sad, gay, and horny. Yes, amazing. And Maddie? Uh, yeah, I read this book a couple weeks ago. I actually started it at a very similar time to Erica, and I really liked it. I thought it was really great. I love Madeline Miller's writing. I think she just paints a beautiful story. I enjoyed it. Totally. I read most of it on an airplane, which apparently like a ton of people did because I've seen a bunch of TikToks about this lately. It's like when you watch an R-rated movie on an airplane and you're like, is anyone else seeing this stuff? I really did enjoy the book. I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it in case anyone's wondering why we're doing this. Books about Greek mythology, books gay, popular on the internet, and those are like the three criteria for things we're allowed to talk about on Seaweed Brain. So delightful. As far as we can tell, I'm literally reading from Carter's notes now. As far as we can tell, this book is pretty much on the money as far as mythological context. It covers key figures and moments from around the Trojan War, everything from Helen of Troy's engagement, Achilles hiding as a woman, Briseis, do we know if that's how we say this? Briseis? That's how I pronounced it. Oh, Briseis? was how they pronounced it in the uh in the audiobook this is why i have to listen to audiobooks because otherwise i don't know how to pronounce anything not even not greek mythology books just like normal books so it covers all these all these moments from the children war we've got odysseus we've got ajax Achilles and Patroclus, this gets covered in the book, they were buried together. They were like besties. They went to war together. But history was like, they were roommates, you know? Homer said they were not gay, basically. Plato said they were gay. But our main historical context for assuming that they were more than friends is really the way that Achilles mourns Patroclus's death, which is in this book. And I thought was interesting because, of course, Patroclus is our narrator. And so we have to have the image of Achilles mourning his death after he 
he's dead and like no longer physically present, we can talk about that. And critically, this is just background context, critical reception, it was very heavily awarded, won the Orange Prize, got a lot of good reviews, but also the New York Times critic dragged it, said it was like a YA book. Why is that a drag? We will never know. We will never know. We will never understand pretentiousness. All of that being said, we're going to dive in now to the conveniently placed discussion questions at the back of the book. Thanks, Madeline Miller and her editors. First question is, in the Iliad, Patroclus is a relatively minor character. Why do you think the author chose him to be her narrator? Which other figures in the story might make interesting narrators? class popcorn speak as you desire well i think patroclus was an, an interesting choice because the obvious choice is achilles i think that would have been an awful choice because achilles whole thing is pride and hubris that's his little fatal flaw and therefore it does not make him a reliable narrator particularly whereas patroclus is a very self-critical narrator and so we get very much the good and the bad but almost more of the bad mm -hmm. because he's so critical of himself i think it's always important to think about point of view of your narrators because you're getting a different story depending on who's narrating which goes into who else would be an interesting narrator i think Thetis would be a really interesting narrator Whoa. because it would be a completely different book. Absolutely. Maddie, anything to add to that? I completely agree. I think Patroclus, out of like everyone, he's probably just the most removed from everything that's going on. Like he did go to the war, but he stayed out of it. He was a medic. They're always considered neutral. You don't attack the medics. And so he didn't really have like that much of a stake in this except for Achilles and he just wanted to be with him. So I think it was important to show someone that's more on the outside. Also, he was an outcast. He was disowned as a child, sent to live somewhere else. And I mean, I haven't read the Iliad. That wasn't one of my required readings in high schools. No interest in reading it, honestly. Mm, on, but, no, um, you shouldn't have to do that. That's what summaries are for. Yeah, exactly. So I actually didn't know he was such a minor character in the original text. I had actually never heard of him when I started reading Song of Achilles. So I think it was a really interesting choice to take someone that someone who doesn't like study Greek mythology might not know. Mm -hmm. And I know I am obsessed with Percy Jackson, but I don't <laughs> do Greek mythology very much. I don't know much about it. No so I think it's a really interesting take. Thetis as a narrator would be like dark companion book. She is very scary. I, I appreciate her character. It's like that thing where like she is terrifying told from the point of view of Patroclus. How would she look if it was from her point of view? Mm, maybe you guys also did this. I really pictured her immediately. Immediately when they first described her, I was like, it's Kate Blanchett as Hela in Thor Ragnarok. Like to a T. Looks like death, but is also really like gorgeous. Hard to describe. <laughs> terrifying. We all know I'm terrified of Kate Blanchett. So that was a theater. Who is it, honestly? <laughs> I feel like on the subject of the narrator, the whole passive narrator thing, from the perspective of this boy is just pining over this man, it can be kind of insufferable sometimes. I'm like, just do, is he really that great? I don't know. <laughs> that is that is not literary whatsoever. That's just personal. I mean, like, I agree in the point of like, can Achilles really be that good? Have you just been this like manipulated? In the end, 100% Achilles and Patroclus, I'm here for it. But there are times in the book where it gets to be like two pages of him being like achilles is so perfect look at his hair um <laughs> it is blonde and shines in the sun <laughs> yes like i think you need to count the number of times achilles hair is compared to sunlight it's beautiful 
it's great. We need to focus on something else. He has yeah. no personal goals. Okay, good segue into the next question, which is near the beginning of their friendship, Achilles tells his father that he values Patroclus because he is surprising. What do you think Achilles means by that? How is Patroclus different from the other foster boys and why? I don't have an answer for this, so please. I guess what I took away from that would be that he kind of like stood up for himself a little bit like at the beginning when Achilles was like aren't you supposed to be doing this and he's like I don't want to I don't want to be here I don't want to do anything like this this sucks my life sucks and Achilles is like wow my life doesn't suck so (laughs) I guess you can come along that's kind of how I like pictured the beginning of their friendship like Achilles was like wow this guy like really hates life and I don't so I'm gonna like take him in and I guess I saw a little bit of myself in Patrick. <laughs> sure, sure. I was going to say similarly, like, I see a lot of myself in Patroclus. He's a little just emo and gay. And, like, he kind of <laughs> hates everything. Yeah. And Achilles sees that and is like, you really just don't want to be anywhere. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. I also think part of it is, like, you're gay. That's interesting. I'm curious. They just like feel that in each other. I think Mm -hmm. his gaydar goes off and he's like, I am attracted to you and I think you are to me as well. And that's new. And that might be part of it. But also part of it is definitely the apathy. Yeah. I'm going to skip the next question because it's, what do you think are the reasons behind Thetis' opposition to Patroclus? That's pretty easy. Homophobia. um, She wants him to be a god. Patroclus is immortal. Blah, blah, blah. How do the boys change during their time with Chiron? Do the centaur's lessons continue to be a guiding force in their lives? I love this question because it brings up Chiron, which is literally the main reason I wanted to talk about this book on our show, because the way that Chiron is written by Madeline Miller in this book, it makes Rick Riordan's portrayal of Chiron feel like literally criminal. How dare you make him into this weird, apathetic, manipulative person? Like, Chiron in this novel is the queer elder. Oh my god, my mom just brought me tea. Thank you. I won't. I'm in her closet. Isn't that fun? Um, Oh, what a fun episode to record in the closet. (laughs) What was I saying? Okay, Chiron is... The queer elder. He is just so calming. He has the answers to everything. He's been around the block. He is here to heal you. He doesn't give a crap about teaching you how to fight if you don't want to know. I just, I loved everything about him. There was this element of sameness, of protection. It said Mm. specifically Thetis can't see them there. Chiron is the queer safe space for these Mm -hmm. kids to actually start to pursue their relationship together to start to understand their feelings and also understand themselves in more than the way the world is asking them to absolutely carter's coming in yay oh yeah but yeah and the fact that they're outside of everything that chiron is very external from society obviously physically and that he literally lives in the mountains but also that he doesn't support these foolish wars he knows how history plays itself out and he is just beyond the rules and boundaries of society and it's so beautiful. It's like summer camp in the best way. Hi, Carter. Welcome back from evil West Side traffic. Yeah, I'm very sorry. They closed down fully like three lanes on a five lane freeway um, in the middle oh of the afternoon. Oh my gosh. But we're here. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Whenever you want it, do you want to give us your one sentence, what you overall thought of the book? Or just I thoughts? thought it was like 
pretty cute. Yeah, I don't know. I, I had a pretty good time. Um, I read this New York Times review of the book that was like really just kind of excruciating. It was this very cantankerous sounding person talking about how it's too much YA and it reads like softcore and that it's like a Sparknotes version of the Iliad. And I think for all of those reasons, I kind of enjoyed it. Like relative to say, what, those, that's what I thought it might be. That is exactly <laughs> what was so good about it. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on Chiron and how do the boys change during their time with Chiron? Do the centaur's lessons continue to be a guiding force in their lives? I mean, I think they really like came into themselves as people. They really learned who they were. When they grew up, it was all about doing what Greeks do. You just kind of hang around, you learn music, or you are miserable for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> that's like the two things you can do as a Greek, like in ancient Greece, be miserable or play music. And going with Chiron, I think really shaped them as people. It helped them to grow up and grow as individuals. Chiron, he didn't tell them like what they had to do. He was like, what do you guys enjoy doing? What do you want to do? And no, I don't think anyone had ever asked them that. Maybe Achilles, because everybody just wants to please him. But like, I don't think people really asked that. I don't think people were allowed to explore themselves as much. It's almost like going to college. You know, you go to a small liberal arts school. Precisely. And... <laughs> it is a liberal arts education. <laughs> yes, that is literally what Chiron gives them. Question after that. To what extent does Achilles' ultimate destiny shape his choices? Is there such a thing as free will in this world? And by this, let's mean the world of the book, because I don't feel like talking about, like, this actual world right now. I don't want to go a, there. What a deep question. Just, like, does free will exist? Discuss. In this world? I don't know. In the world of Madeline Miller's book, what do we think? Like, no, right? That's pretty, pretty clear. I almost want to say yes, only because we don't like really interact with gods besides Thetis, but we like catch glimpses of them and know when they're acting. And so like there's free will. Things happen because gods intervene to make them happen a lot mm. of the times. A lot of the like fate things are the gods being like, this was told to me, so I'm going to make it happen. And there's like some wiggly room yeah you know i think in song of achilles the prophecy and stuff just kind of guided what happened because you get told this prophecy like this is what's going to happen but they were making these choices by themselves because they were told that this was going to happen and they either were trying to prevent it from happening or make it happen i mean the gods were involved a lot but i also think that especially achilles like lived his life he's like I was told I'm the best fighter, so I'm going to be the best fighter. I was told I'm going to die in a war, so I'm going to go to war. So I think he was making these choices based on what people were telling him. I don't know. Yeah. The book does Great spend a lot of time on. on this moment in Fork in the Road when Achilles is allegedly has the option to go live a quiet life as a nobody who dies unremarkable and weak and old. And um, does it make sense for us to think that much about the world in which Achilles would have done that? Yes and no. Like, it's kind of interesting in that it's like a reminder of the kind of person he is and what values he holds. And it guides a lot of the way that we think about his relationship with Patrick Wilson, with everybody else and the rest of the book. But at the same time, we don't really take that seriously. Nobody takes that seriously. He certainly doesn't take it seriously as an actual option. It's the way that it is 
in our lives where like we have choices, but they're constrained choices and they're choices that we make given strong personality imprints and the voices of our parents in our heads and etc. Yeah, the quote that obviously comes to mind, I don't remember who was saying this. Is it Thetis? He is a weapon, a killer. Do not forget it. You can use a spear as a walking stick, but that will not change its nature. That quote, I mean, is obviously telling me that in within this world, we are to believe that no matter how Achilles wants to cover up, no matter how much he wants to act like he's a cottage core bitch, at the end of the day, he's going to fight this war. That's who he is. There's nothing we can do about it. I do remember audibly gasping when I read that line, though. One of the best parts of the book. I looked it up. <laughs> the quote is Odysseus. He says this to Patroclus in the context of Patroclus confronting him about the murder of Iphigenia at Aulis and saying, like, it's not that deep. He's going to kill all these people anyway. We're just accelerating that process. Wow. Reading yes. Odysseus in this book after reading Odysseus and Circe is something else. It's like, <laughs> I don't want her to write a book about him, but I feel like she really could if she wanted to. <laughs> we don't want her to, but I do kind of. <laughs> the next question is also a plot thing, so I'm going to skip it. This one's kind of nice. Myths are often called timeless for their insight into human behavior. What parallels do you see between the characters and conflicts of this novel and today? What pieces of Patroclus and Achilles' story can be universalized? Don't say homosexuality. <laughs> uh, I was, you really just stopped me because I was just, my instinct was like gay, sad, and horny for all time. <laughs> no, but that's also true though. <laughs> I mean, timeless insights into human behavior. It's important to see representation in myths from long ago. We did a whole episode on that. It's important for us to know that people existed from the beginning of time. It's not new. It's not a trend. It's not a fad. This has always been a thing. <laughs> yeah. The the way that they handle that in this book is really interesting in that Madeline Miller, I feel like a lot of the way that I was told about this relationship between Achilles and Patroclus before is in the context of the norms for Greeks. That is like, this is one of those relationships where it is two men. There's like an extreme power dynamic there and therefore it is socially acceptable. Like Patroclus was someone who was there to serve Achilles basically and therefore it fits in those terms. Mm -hmm. But Madeline Miller chooses to tell the story in a way that sort of brings the closet back to ancient Greece in a way that I am still struggling with how I feel about it because- yeah. I don't know. Like, I think it is useful to people because of this, but also I think that one of the great values of telling these types of stories about queerness in other time periods is the way that it can potentially unlock us from our ideas of what is normal and what is gender. And I don't know, like, it feels like such a deliberate choice to me that she leaned away from that and instead is like, no, this is a story about an experience that maybe you or someone you know is having today, where there is a disapproving mother, where there are social covenants and yeah. laws that might prevent you from having certain funeral rites or um, hospital visitation or like whatever. Like there are a lot of like very direct analogs that you can draw between like social stigmatization, legal yeah. boundaries, shame uh, into this novel that I think are like genuinely a little weird and like seem feel very deliberate. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to mention that there is a lot of talk, especially around the time of Diomedes. Is that her name? What is the other island called? Does I mean, he's the king. Her oh, name also starts with the Skyros. Skyros, yeah. Around Skyros. the Skyros time, there's this talk of like, hey, we know that lots of little boys your age have this kind of a thing going on, but you're older now and it's time to let go of that. It's time to find a wife. You have to leave that in the past. And I found that to be a very interesting piece of world building of this version of ancient Greece. I don't know, like establishing <laughs> the rules and boundaries of what is and isn't acceptable in this version of ancient yeah. Greece. Yeah, it's not a historical novel. But... Yes. Her name is Daedamia. Daedamia. 
Poor girl. Yeah, Poor thing. Oh my god. If anyone Get identifies with any character in this book, <laughs> raise your hand if you're her. I don't know. <laughs> well, listen, she caught feelings for Achilles when Achilles was presenting as a woman. And then we come find out Achilles is a gay man. And then she bangs his boyfriend. That's that's rough it's rough rough. it's messy loses her man and the kid in like roughly the same time period it's just it's bad for her yeah she is suffering poor thing i would like some follow-up on her yeah how is she doing definitely not well but i can't imagine i mean she's rich let's let's not feel too bad for her i think she's rich it's true she is rich (laughs) she'll be fine and she's technically still like married to achilles no well, or he's dead not? now, so probably not. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry, now, did true. I spoil the end of the book? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's really funny I like was looking for summaries of the book before I read it and I read one summary and I was like what this is literally just the Iliad like what is happening right now this is so not useful (laughs) next question is what is the significance of song and music in the novel my interpretation of the title I'm I'm not very musically inclined just full disclosure but my interpretation of the, the title is that the Iliad was usually sung it was like a poem that they sang and passed it down through generations. And this was the portion that was the song of Achilles. This yeah. is what we sing about Achilles. And then obviously it had the song at the end. So that's just my interpretation. But I thought the liars were cool, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The whole, by calling it the song of Achilles, Madeline Miller is saying for far too long, we have ignored key details of this story, of this specific aspect. And it's time that we revisit in grave detail and give it the time that it's due and recognize these moments that very much happened that we will not be skipping over. That being said, I was like, where was the music? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think we see it here and there. Achilles likes to make up songs about things. Um, (laughs) And that... He's like, he's just that like, he's just that golden retriever boy who like has a guitar and he likes to like bring it to the campfire and sing. And it's like, we all hate him. We're a little in love with him, but like hate him. Like, yeah. Like Patroclus. Who is it? Who is it? I feel like we went to high school with this person. No, I know. I'm trying to think of it. We can talk about this later. Oh my God. (laughs) Cool. Patroclus is often a self-critical narrator. Consider how other characters in the novel regard him. Do they see him in the same way he sees himself? Um, they do not see him, is my answer to this question. Sure, yeah. They do not see him at all. They do even not a little see bit. him. No one sees him, except for Achilles and Briseis. Like, I... kind of Chiron? Not really. Not, no, honestly, no. Chiron doesn't give <laughs> crap about Patroclus. <laughs> People see him in context of of Achilles because I just this just makes me think of Didamia also like right before the weird sex scene where she's like you're so ugly what the fuck why are you, <laughs> like why are you so gross and I can't That's believe he loves you too. and not me <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that this question is a good segue into the discussion of Patroclus as a narrator more broadly and how it fits into broader tropes. Like, I assume that other people went through this phase as well, where you were really into this as a narrative device. Back, of course, in the heyday of Sherlock on BBC, that was like the time where we were all thinking about what this means. 
I personally had a phase in my life where I really strongly identified as a Watson, whatever the fuck that means, in the sense of like, I am someone else's like- Ew, stop it. Be the protagonist. No, Be okay, that like, bitch. obviously that's the correct answer, but there's like a sentiment that Patroclus is like tapping into and that we're yep. like, it's, it's both trying to elevate him as like a kind of protagonist, but also not because it's not his story. It's literally called the Song of Achilles. And he is just there sort of as like an extended trope and an extended literary device to tell the story of Achilles in a more interesting way, which is kind of complicated. I'm reminded of the way that they talk in Six about how this is not ultimately the way you want to think about these people because they are people in their own right, but also like this is the only way you can think about them because if yeah. not, then there's no reason to talk about them, right? Of course, the know. reference to Six, the musical about Henry. Six, the musical Henry that started in the West End. Oh, uh, I love Six. <laughs> we love Six. We talked a little bit about Patroclus as a narrator, but now that Carter's here, I would like to reopen that discussion because I agree that it's like weirdly complicated because he's passive for the whole book and at the <laughs> very end, he takes charge because Achilles becomes insufferable and Patroclus is like I'm gonna go do the thing I'm gonna pretend to be him I'm gonna Selena Beauregard this moment and <laughs> yes Selena is the frame of reference actually Selena she, did the frame of reference. she did it first <laughs> she did it first and Clarice did it first and so you're like oh wow he did something and so <laughs> I don't know this whole moment of wow it's so amazing that like he's like this unspecial narrator then gets flipped on its head at the very end where we say actually he just did something really important and also he was the best of the greeks all along you guys and i was like so we weren't committing to the bit we weren't committing to the fact that he really did just kind of suck and was normal and was bad at everything <laughs> this whole <laughs> he was so normal really... and bad at everything but he was like impactful despite being normal and bad at everything because he had connections um... no, he was like morally the best person ever he was oh. like the best. He had the best heart. Yeah. Yes. That's true. That was a little I don't have that either. <laughs> it, <it's... laughs> Since Carter brought up Sherlock, I'm going to fall on my sword and bring up Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> there we go. I... There we go. Complete that. Yeah. That's why you're here. I, That's why you're here. This, this is, I feel like this is a similar, the similar trope where Doctor Who is kind of told through the story of the sidekicks. Yes. The the companions are how we see the doctor. And the story is about the doctor, but the whole thing is like the doctor wouldn't do what they do if it weren't for the sidekicks. And that's Patroclus's whole thing, where he's like, I'm the sidekick, but Achilles would be useless without him. Let's be real. Achilles doesn't know what he's doing. He's a good machine and people like using him, but Patroclus, he just kind of points him and like lets him go. And without that, I think Achilles would have just fought the wrong person too soon. I don't I don't know, but he would not have made it as far as he did without him. And I think someone would have killed him for being a little shit at like 12. I agree 100%, but let's not forget that Patroclus is an essential worker. He is a healthcare worker. Healthcare worker. Period. You're right for bringing that up. He has an arc. He becomes a nurse. He said, "Here's my degree. I'm an RN." Okay. He did a lot Related more to the chopping of limbs than I think normal RNs do, though. <laughs> I, I think the RN thing is a good segue into like I think that it's useful to start this arc and have people see themselves in this character. But at the end, I do feel like the book for something that is probably read by children honestly, like leans a little bit too hard into this idea of Patroclus did it right. Because Patroclus yeah. kind of did not do it right. Like Patroclus, I, he deserves to have that. his own life. He yes. deserves to have a career independent yes. of his man. I, I feel like the ending is very like Patroclus did the right thing by sticking by his man, by like um, supporting the star in his life. And that's just not, I want children to read this book and have seen like more of a twist at the end where they're like, ah, 
maybe this is how I saw myself when I was wrong. I'm also a protagonist. Let me like ha- have goals. I'm a part <laughs> of that. I'm a part of that. Sorry. Aren't we I? We got references today. That is. <laughs> we are talking musical theater. That is the last five years by Jason Robert Brown, everybody. <laughs> I feel like I both agree and disagree because a, yeah. I do agree he does a little too much putting up with Achilles bullshit for no reason. But the end of the book is a lot of him being like, well, I have the moral high ground and I'm going to do what I want. I think mm-hmm. yeah. it shows a nice side of of compromise. Like, I still want what's best for you, but I also have priorities. All these Greeks are dying. We need to save them. I know that you won't go. I'm mad at you for that. But here's how we can have our cake and eat it too. I get to save the Greeks and your reputation and you get to sit there and sulk and be a little baby. Yeah. I, I just found the notes app where I wrote an extremely long sentiment about the end of the book and Patrick should have left him and blah 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 right after I finished reading it on the plane. The ending ending like the very ending where we're singing the song of Achilles, goosebumps, mm-hmm. tears. But the pre-ending where Achilles is acting like a fucking bitch. I was so over it. <laughs> and I wrote, it is true by like chapter 25 this relationship is toxic and I'd love to see a narrative that's like our love was once beautiful and sweet and sacred and then he grew up and became a man like they do and now he's toxic and I actually don't need to go blindly with him anymore. And I stand by that. <laughs> yeah. On the subject of High School Musical, the musical, the series season two, sometimes <laughs> boys are cute when they're 15 and then they become men and you're allowed to leave them because it's not your fault. Okay. Sometimes the Rose does have an inner life um, and inner beauty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This is incoherent. This is absolutely incoherent. But the point, okay. I think it is valuable as a narrative of recognizing that this phenomenon exists that with like these complications that Brayden mentions but also it does frustrate me and I want better for him I don't know like I want there to be a thing for when people who are younger than us read this to just say at the end like by the way in case you were confused this was bad this is an example of what is bad <laughs> watch out <laughs> like full honesty I find myself attracted to toxic relationships and this might be what <laughs> like <laughs> There's nothing but full honesty on this podcast (laughs) when it comes to our own toxic relationships. Plastic Hearts by Miley Cyrus. Yeah, that's me. And that's why I like the toxicness of their relationship a little too much. (laughs) That's very valid. I do think before we leave off of this topic, we also have to address the more technical logistical aspect of the Patroclus thing, which is that maybe this is just me. I found it very bizarre. And I was wondering about this the whole time. Like, what are they going to do when he dies? He dies. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps on narrating from, from death. And I, I, I found it just, I don't want to say like weird or something, because obviously like I can suspend disbelief. I'm not a child, but also like, <laughs> it's just funny to me. It was, I found it really funny. <laughs> Let me say about that. I actually hate when the narrator dies and then they keep telling the story and they keep going it's just weird <laughs> i do not like it i hated it at first by the i like started to get it i was like okay it's because that they can't join each yes. other yet it's this whole thing they have to do the end bit with Thetis. i get it like i get it as a, a literary device it's weird because he died and then i thought the next chapter was going to be achilles point of view and then it wasn't and it's written in a way that like makes you think it might be even like third person from his point of view. And then you're, you're like, but then he gave me my sword. And then you're like, oh, it's the dead body talking. 
I'll say it, it does work for me. Personally, it works fully fair, for me. As fair, somebody fair, who's fair. like a magical realism. Okay, um, okay, okay. It works for me when the body, when he's like slowly leaving his body and he's like trapped in between and he can like kind of feel sensation from his like phantom limbs. I loved that. And the device of the funeral rites weren't performed properly. So he's like tethered to the earth. That worked for me. It took a few pages to get used to, but yeah. I do think alternatively, it could have been really cool to see Briseis narrating the end of the books as the person who survives mm. and also has a That's a good point. We'll get to her. As represented in the novel, what are some of Odysseus's defining qualities? Do you find him a sympathetic character? Why or why not? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's hard in these books. They really write him as just vicious and incredibly unlikable but then there's which that is one moment valid where, it's so valid but then there's that one moment towards the end where he's like i really tried with agamemnon right where hmm. did he though we don't know we don't know did he my thing is okay pyrrhus was like no just, just go do it while his back is turned go in, you think he's gonna tear down the monument for you carving something extra on there it's not hard but like are they gonna yank their souls back out of the underworld i'm unclear Perhaps. I feel like Odysseus could have tried harder. He's manipulative, which I appreciate and respect manipulation as a trait. Um, Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, okay. Your super villain is showing. I'm not showing showing a good side of myself right now, am I? Um, But I still don't like him. I think that the reason why people think of him as a hero is not just because he has the Odyssey written about him, but because his goal through all of this is supposed to be to just get home to his wife and kid. And we're supposed to think that that's great and fine and that it's okay for him to do all of the things that he does to just get home to his wife and kid. And I think that we're at a point in society where we can reevaluate that and just say, no, no. There are a lot of things that you should not do just to get home to your wife and kids. Like, um, really accelerate a war over nothing. <laughs> like, I just... <laughs> Yeah, you didn't see Carter doing that to get to seaweed brains, so I don't know why Odysseus had to do all that. That's true. I was I was on a voyage of my own home for many years this afternoon, and I did not just get people killed so I could get home. Yeah, you didn't start a war murdering thousands of innocent people just to get across the three. No judgment. I did not. There should be judgment. There absolutely should be judgment. All right, that was a delightful discussion about Odysseus. The next question is about Achilles and Agamemnon, and I don't care, so we're gonna skip it. And, and here's the here's the goodie. Here's what I'm excited to discuss: Achilles and Briseis. Achilles and Briseis each claim Patroclus's loyalty and affection. In what ways are they similar or different? What are the dynamics of each of their relationships with Patroclus? Who wants to start? <laughs> Guys, I'm not going to lie. Towards the end of the book, I just wanted him to leave Achilles for Briseis. I was like, come on. She's right there. She's so much better. I loved her so much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't didn't want to be that person, but I had to be that person. I I had a lot of mixed feelings about this because I agree in sense of Briseis is a healthier relationship potential for him. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that the choice that he was offered was stay in this toxic queer relationship or go be straight and happy. And I was like, 
I, for that reason, let's stay toxic and gay, you know? (laughs) I'd rather be gay and toxic than straight and boring. (laughs) And and obviously, Patroclus is not necessarily gay. He could be queer, (laughs) but it's unclear. He has one sexual interaction with a woman that he's like, unclear if he enjoyed that because it's unclear if he is attracted to any of them because he is just so smitten with Achilles. Exactly. Which is why we don't get to see it. But I don't like that there's a binary that is formed that is like, they they both could be happy in straight relationships or love each other, but like, it's a little toxic and they're going to die. Yeah, I think it's both. I feel like Madeline, Maddie, specifically left it open for us to say, maybe problematically, well, is it what Brayden is talking about with like, choosing a woman is the safe choice? Or is he just genuinely like, very bisexual? I interpreted that Patroclus was extremely bisexual and Achilles is extremely homosexual. That was my personal mm. reading of it. I think specifically I think that's very fair. because of the scene where Patroclus does have sex with a woman, I feel like he says something about how it just wasn't the same because it wasn't Achilles. And that's all that he says. Like, it just wasn't Achilles and therefore, like, it was whatever. Which to me says that, like, exactly like you said, Brayden, he just loves Achilles and that's it. And there's no way out of it. He's never going to escape that relationship. It means everything to him. The roller coaster is all I've ever had. And uh, it will continue to be Achilles um, the, no matter what. I was just going to say, the song of Achilles is a Taylor Swift song. Absolutely. Like, the song of Achilles is off of Red. Um <laughs> Taylor's version. Sorry, song 30 Achilles. songs? She's releasing 30 songs? And a 10-minute long Red. one. And one of them is 10 one minutes is 10 long. Minutes. This she is the is moment I've been waiting for. It makes sense to launch into a slightly bigger conversation about Briseis in the sense that I have not actually sat down and thumbed through the Iliad, but my understanding is that in the in like most classical tellings of the story involve actually just like a bad relationship between Achilles and Briseis that is manipulative and exploitative and would and should be considered incredibly unethical and i understand obviously madeline miller's choice to rewrite that completely it's important i think to understand it as a choice that like this is a sanitization of the story that in the original myths is really messy and complicated and involves people committing really just terrible acts of violence in order to i don't know like keep up the facade of the closet or just because they are just also like terrible people who like will do whatever they're permitted to do or like i don't not, not like she, she chose to just go so far in the other direction where it's not like achilles has any relation like the, the way that it's written is just like oh he is her like dashing savior from sex slavery where the initial versions he's an exploiter he is like part of the problem do, do other people have particularly strong feelings about this yeah I think in the Iliad, Achilles non-consensually assaults a couple women. Didamia, once he's revealed to prove he is a man, like his manhood, quote unquote, he assaults Didamia, where in this version, it's almost flipped the opposite way, where he's Mm -hmm. coerced into having sex with her. And then the same thing for Briseis. He does what all of the awful Greek kings and generals do, and they steal women and rape them. And it's definitely a choice to flip that on its head. I think it's important to do that in order to be able to read this book. Obviously, she could not write a book where the hero (laughs) rapes someone. That no one wants to read that. That's awful. I mean, clearly people wanted to read it for centuries, and they did. But um, (laughs) it's very interesting how it's, it's almost 
played oppositely in her version. I like that Achilles and Briseis don't have a relationship. I like how it fits into the story of the Iliad. It doesn't say the Iliad was lying. It says that the people didn't actually know the full story. Because in this book, everybody thinks that Achilles is mm-hmm. raping yeah. all of these women. It's just that mm-hmm. the women and Patroclus know that he's not. So I like it kind of like slips in and it gives us the feeling that everything in this book is true, even if it wasn't in the Iliad. But I also like Briseis and Patroclus give me the vibe of like, even though they never got married, people who were married and then got divorced and are now best friends. Like that's that's how their relationship tracks for me. Because they like sure. are life partners and they love each other, but they don't have like romantic feelings for each other. And like Briseis has like a fine relationship with Achilles. They just don't really interact. They're just around each other because of Patroclus. Get like family dinner, you know, like the potluck. It's like whatever. Yeah, I really like her. I think she was one of my favorite characters. And Going off what Erica said, I think it was good to give Patroclus a relationship that didn't involve Achilles. Like he was kind of involved at the beginning, but then they formed this bond that was separate from his bond with Achilles. And it gave Patroclus a little bit more depth that I think he wouldn't have had without that relationship with her. He needs friends. Give him friends. (laughs) We all do. I can relate (laughs) to him a lot. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. (laughs) He was a nurse. Maddie's a nurse. Checks all the boxes. Let's bring this up as a way to segue into something else. Peleus, Peleus warns his son that any mortal who visits the sea nymphs in their caves beneath the sea does not return the same. How is this belief borne out by the character of Pyrrhus, who was raised there? In what way does Pyrrhus confirm or deny Patroclus's fear about the gods? I feel like the one-line answer would be Pyrrhus is homophobic because of the gods who are homophobic. Um, <laughs> The, the way that they write this character, I think, is basically really, you could say status obsessed, but I think that it's supposed to be reflecting the idea of the gods as beings who think that the purpose of humanity is to leave legacies and memories and stories behind. And that, like, the preservation and the, like, maintenance of those things during a lifetime is kind of the point in a way that I think is supposed to clash with the perspectives of Achilles and Patroclus, who kind of have preferences about what happens to them after they die. And obviously we get this whole thing about singing to song or whatever, but like, it does really seem that both of them are not of that perspective. And that's, I think, supposed to be the deeper level of the clash between these characters and like why Pyrrhus is so intolerable and hard to understand in, in this book. Yeah. I think in Circe, it was almost the exact opposite because she lived forever. And so she had to live with every single consequence. There was no end. She was just always there and always living with those consequences of her actions. So I think that's a really interesting parallel with them. Thank you for bringing up Circe because that's what I was going to bring up next and just say that both in Circe and then also I just finished reading Ariadne by Jennifer Say, which is obviously, you know, same genre. Um, (laughs) This whole idea of what does it mean to be amortal versus immortal, especially kind of towards the end of the book. That's basically like the primary concern of both Ariadne and Circe. Personally, Circe hits way harder for me, mostly because it's not about a war. Like, you can't escape the fact this entire book is literally set during the Trojan War. It's a war novel. And that's just not personally entertaining to me. And <laughs> I do feel like, to your point, this book did not have anything really interesting to say about war, which is kind of unfortunate. Like, mm-hmm. I think at one point I was kind of of the opinion that, like, all war stories are boring because the only vaguely tolerable thing for people to say about war is just that it's really bad 
But people come up with interesting ways to talk about war and the effects that it has on people. And I don't think that this book really did that, but it did other things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it did a lot of other stuff. I have a question that I want to ask everyone before we close, but I'm really curious to hear what people think about the value of choosing this story as the basis for this because I feel like you could have told a very similar story about like randos right or like people who do not have a pre-existing canon and a pre-existing cultural context around themselves whereas like the story of Achilles is one that most people know in some detail right like I I think at least people have heard of this character and have an understanding of it of Achilles as some sort of symbol of classical masculinity and power right I'm curious what people think about that like what the value of that was beyond getting a different kind of critical recognition perhaps I think it's kind of what we mentioned a little bit earlier about you can make new characters or you can prove that characters that existed a long time ago that we've lived with for a long time represent the stories that we are craving and I think that that means a lot. I think it's effective in the way that just world building and cinematic universes and things like that are very important in the zeitgeist right now. There are a lot of things that reference Greek mythology and there's movies like Troy and there's things everywhere. And by taking these characters, you can apply it as a lens. You can take this book and apply it as a lens to read Percy Jackson and just be like, okay, that's Achilles. I choose to see that Achilles as this same Achilles. And that adds something metatextual. Whereas if it's a story about other characters on their own, it sits alone and it's great and it's something on its own, but it just invites metatextual analysis into it the same way that Cersei does. That's what this whole genre I think is built upon yeah. is you question the story, you appreciate this book, but you also look at it in context with the other stories that are telling similar things. Absolutely. I also yeah. think it just like makes Greek mythology more approachable. Like I'm not going to go sit and read the Iliad, but I would sit and read Song of Achilles. And we certainly haven't even talked enough about how good Madeline Miller's writing is. Like, just the prose (laughs) is unmatched. Like you said, Matt, it's very easy to understand. It's very easy to read, but it feels elevated. It feels lifted. It feels accessible while still making it feel like you were reading something that is, like, historical almost. Because it's lyrical in its own right, but different in a way than the Iliad is. It's very lyrical and paints a lot of imagery, which references the original text, but it's more accessible to read. We probably can't do an entire episode about this without bringing up the fact that Madeline Miller is like, as far as we know, like a straight cis woman writing a novel about young gay men. And I know that that has received a lot of criticism. Thoughts? Sometimes they do a good job is I think something that we need to (laughs) say in the conversation. Like, let's be... I'm not going to pretend that I did not have several very formative experiences reading heterosexual women writing about queer experiences of people mask of center who just did a really excellent job. That said, obviously, like we do need to ask the questions about what sorts of assumptions are going to be made about Mm -hmm. like the way that the stories are told. I think she does a good job. Like, I don't think that the counterfactual is a good thing where like we should only have straight people writing about straight people because then books would be worse and there would be fewer interesting ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Carter just said. Like, obviously... We brought up some criticism of the way that she she's written queerness in this. I think it is also important to like acknowledge the historical context that she's trying to bring in. And I think that's not in a way that a queer author would escape either. And 
I honestly, I think the sex scenes are written pretty tastefully in a way. I think a queer author would put emphasis on which one is the top and which one was the bottom. And I don't think she does, though my, I, I have my own personal opinions on it. Um, it's definitely Achilles is the bottom. I just Period. have to say that. Like, like, but I like that she she leaves it up There's to interpretation. Right but that was the, that is the right answer. But I like that she, that she leaves it up. <laughs> I mean, like normalize femtops, Patroclus, normalize femtop, femtop energy. It's true. It's true. Normalize not not having to establish who is the top and who is the bottom in literature as well. <laughs> Normalize letting podcasts do that. Letting annoying (laughs) fan podcasts do it for you. That's what we are the arbiters of that, not the author. Thank you very much. Exactly. Um. Um, This has been delightful. I appreciate this forum to get some stuff off of my chest about this book. I really enjoyed chatting with you all. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having thank- us. This was yes, so fun. Yes, thank you so much. People listen to this and this episode does well. <laughs> Want to do more book clubs? Probably Cersei. <laughs> yes. uh, coming up next because I would love to reread it. Can we get some social media handles, please? All right. Yeah, you can find me at Return to Camp. Also, you can find me at B-R-Y-D-N-S-T-L-L-M-N. My full name without vowels. Um <laughs> Plugging the personals. Yeah. The personals. You can find me on Fatal Flaw. Check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal Flaw PJO. Please follow Maddie on Twitter. Um, Maddie's also a phenomenal healthcare worker. So so check Maddie out there. Check out the excellent healthcare work. Check her out at her night shifts. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) 